The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're continuing to work our way through the text. Matthew chapter 4, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 12, and we'll read through to the end of verse 25, to the end of the chapter. Today, we're just going to be focusing on verses 18 to 22, but it comes in between two sections, which are important to understanding verses 18 to 22. So we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to zoom in at verses 18 to 22. So we will read the scripture, we'll pray, ask God to open our hearts and our minds to understand the word, and then we'll get to work. Verse 12, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, we come now to hear you speak to us. Father, we know you are always speaking. We know, God, that you, you long to speak to your people through your word. So, Father, we, we open the word this morning, and we come to a challenging passage, the call to discipleship, the call to follow. Father, it's a, it's a bold call, and it's a hard call to respond to. And so, God, I just pray, Father, you would just drive the nail home into our hearts this morning about what it means to be a follower and a disciple of you. God, would you please give us the faith to obey and the strength to obey what we believe to be true about you. We love you, God. We put this time in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The United States is about to celebrate a grim anniversary on April 4th, 1969, about you know, 44 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by a sniper's bullet in Memphis, Tennessee. Recent anniversaries have seen all kinds of commemorations to that event. Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a, a, an advocate for civil rights and for the equality of all men. And so as recent anniversaries have approached, one of the uh, common features that you see each year about this time of year, right, you know, right before Easter, when they're celebrating and commemorating the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King, they will interview his disciples. This is how the news networks and the media outlets will refer to them. These are individuals who partnered with Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, worked alongside of him and, and assisted in his work in the civil rights movement. And then after his tragic death, they went on to continue that work. So they're commonly referred to as his disciples. And when we hear that, we all pretty well understand what we are talking about when we say a disciple of someone. Someone who follows a person, someone who patterns their way of life and maybe shares their same ideals and their same cause and their same principles. So what about the uh, disciples of Jesus? What's significant about these men? 
In this day, as we approach the scriptures, they would often have traveling kind of rabbis, sort of itinerant preachers, teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament. And it wasn't uncommon for individuals to see these traveling rabbis, these traveling teachers, and to want to aspire to be like them, to become a disciple of them, to assist them in their ministry, to study under them, and to try to emulate them. Now, it's not all that different from Martin Luther King. He was a big advocate for the civil rights. And so out of the woodwork, anybody and anybody who may have had a desire, everybody and anybody who may have had a desire to see the civil rights movement advanced, that, that uh, agenda pushed forward, anybody who shared a desire or love for the equality of all men would have flocked to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s banner. They would have come to him. And, and the rabbis in this day and age, it was not uncommon for students and disciples to flock to the rabbi. But there's a significant difference here when we look at Jesus. Jesus didn't have necessarily disciples coming up to him asking to be his disciple. Now, great crowds followed him. But the significant difference is Jesus searched out his own disciples. Look here. Verse 18, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, and we saw last week the land of Galilee and the significance of that, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, so he's up in the north, he's left the south, he's departed from John the Baptist, he's continuing his ministry up in the, south, up in the north. He's there, he sees two brothers, verse 18, Simon, who's going to later take on the name Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is their job, this is their occupation. This is their nine to five, this is how they provide for their families. So he sees them, and he makes a statement, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20 says, immediately, notice the word immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. Okay, so far so good. Verse 21, going on from there. Okay, so he's moving on down the beach ways, going around the Sea of Galilee. He's got two guys in tow. He's got Simon, who's going to be eventually called Peter. And he's also got his brother Andrew. So now there's three of them. They're cruising on down the, the beach there. And going a little further on, it says he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. So you got James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And it says they're in the boat with Zebedee, their father. So it's a family business. They've got the same trade, same occupation. It's the same nine to five. This is how they provide for their family. This is how they make a living. And it says he sees them mending their nets. So they're getting ready to go fishing, or perhaps they've come in from fishing. They're you know, taking care of the odds and ends of doing the chore of fishing, looking after their nets, getting their gear ready for, for the next day's fish. He sees them in the midst of that, in the midst of their occupation, in the midst of their nine to five. And it says that he called them. And verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Now what you have here is you have a repetition. He comes along, Andrew, Simon, follow me. They follow. He goes a little bit further on, sees James and John, follow me. And they follow him. So they're in the midst of their nine to five job. They just, I mean, in the case of James and John, they're with their father, Zebedee, mending the nets. And he says, follow me. And immediately, it says they followed him. In other words, they got up out of the boat. Bye, Dad. See ya. We're leaving. And they're going to go with Jesus. They have no, no means of financially supporting themselves. There is no promise that they're going to get rich out of this. I mean, they're walking away from their trade. They're walking away from their occupation. They're walking away from the life that they have always known for the simple call of following Jesus. Now, immediately, you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, okay, sure, it looks dramatic, but there had to have been some sort of, you know, behind-the-scenes dialogue, right? They had to have known Jesus. Perhaps there was a discussion that took place before Matthew sits here and writes this text, you know. That, you know, nobody just gets up and walks off the job. Nobody just walks away, right? And if you look at the other Gospels, you'll see that these guys did have some exposure to Christ's ministry. In the Gospel of John, it records that there's a, you know, a bit of an inter interchange there, a bit of a dialogue. In the Gospel of Mark, it also records that they, they may have known him, they may have been familiar with him, but in terms of like some sort of a behind-the-scenes kind of deal where they, Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, you know, it's like a get-rich-quick scheme, you know, just come along, follow me, and I'll, I'll take care of you. As far as that's concerned, we have no evidence. But none of that really matters. Because any of those types of discussions ignore the meaning of this text. As you look at the passage, Matthew, he sandwiches it in between 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you look down here in verses 23 to 25, makes this statement, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. You see that there in verse 23. So you have repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the following section, you say, it says he was going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So sandwiched between this idea of kingdom and this other idea of kingdom, which is the same idea, between these two verses, which serve as like bookends, Matthew then inserts this segment where it says, follow me. So Matthew's purpose in this text is not to sit here and say, well, we need to sort of have some sort of an, an understanding with Jesus before we step into a discipleship role and we follow after him. The text is ruthlessly silent on any of the particulars. As far as we know, they're sitting here on the beach, and this is all Matthew's interested in, and this is all he wants you to be interested in. They're sitting here on the beach. They're mending their nets. They're getting ready to go fishing, or perhaps they've just come in from fishing. Perhaps John and, and James are sitting there with brushes, and they've got like some pitch to you know, patch up a leak in the boat and they're sitting there kind of slathering some stuff on here or maybe they're working on the nets over there and they're just going about their business. It's the same old drudgery of a regular nine-to-five job. Perhaps they're humming a little tune to themselves to try to pass the time. Row, row, row your boat. Merrily, merrily. And then Jesus says, follow me. They're in the midst of it, just going through it. And Christ says, follow me. Me. It's an aorist imperative. For those of you who don't know Greek, I'll break it down. It is a single snapshot command. It has occurred in past time. It is something you have heard. There's a definitive moment. It happened. You heard a call. Now it's also in the imperative, which means he's not asking. He's not saying, hey, you guys, would you, would you like to follow me? It's not what he's saying. He sees these guys in their nine to five, and they got to provide for their families. I mean, they got to make a living. They're not at all different from you or me. they got people who are depending upon them. And Christ's statement to them is, follow me. And it's a command. Follow me. That's a pretty, pretty significant claim. I mean, why should we entertain this? If I were to come up to you at your place of business, perhaps Jerry's welding away, and I say, Jerry, follow me. Jerry would be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I doubt Jerry would do that. He'd, uh, <laughs> you know, here on a Sunday morning, that's nice and easy to say, but, you know, any one of us working at our job, you know, we got kids at home. We got to put food on the table. We got to put a roof over their heads. Any Joe Schmo walks in and says, follow me, and makes a command out of it. It's not like, hey, you, would you like me? Follow me. And then he turns and he starts walking, and in that moment you have a decision. Either you're going to obey the call, or you're not. You're either going to follow him, or you won't. Now, if it's me, you should, if you're normal and you're in your right mind, say, forget you. <laughs> I'm not following you. Who are you? And I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm just Josh Claycamp. There's nothing significant about me saying, follow me. But Christ says, follow me. And as we're looking at the text in context, it comes between kingdom and kingdom. So even Dr. Martin Luther King had a cause, the civil rights cause. He was passionate about it and he fought for it. What was Christ's cause? Well, we just saw last week, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And we looked in depth last week what repent means, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time picking apart the particulars of this idea of kingdom. So what does he mean when he says the kingdom is at hand? There are basically two, two types of views here. You've got uh, the first idea is that the kingdom of heaven can be reduced to a, a sort of a subjective sort of realm. It's a, a personal thing in your heart 
where you have a, a relationship with God and you want to try to honor him and you want to obey him and so you follow Jesus. And, and, and so people who take this view, they understand that when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is that you need to change your way of thinking. You need to shift your perspective because the kingdom of God is imminent. In other words, you can have a relationship with God right now, in your heart, personal, intimate relationship. The other side, on the other spectrum, if you've got personal, subjective, internal kind of uh, personal experience with God here on this side, on the other side of the equation are those who take the perspective that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a literal reign of God that is going to be thrust upon this earth, that is going to come upon this earth. And those individuals, they'll go to the extreme to say it has nothing to do with an internal kind of heart response or a, or a personal relationship with God. It is something that is totally future, totally apocalyptic. It's something that's going to come down the road. It's going to put all of its authority and all of its dominion and all of its power on this earth. But we don't see anything like that now. And it's totally future. It's not happened yet. The only problem is when you come to the text, look at what Jesus says there. Again, going back to verse 17. It says, repent, change your mind, shift your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven, look at this, is at hand. It's imminent. It's here. It's about to fall on you. So, really, how could it be something that's totally future and totally far away if Christ says, it's here? It's at hand. It's imminent. It's about to get you. How are we to understand this idea of kingdom? I think the best way to illustrate this and the best way to understand this, of course, always, the principle of the analogy of Scripture. Let Scripture explain itself. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Flip over to Luke 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. I think that uh, basically Jesus should explain himself in this situation. I'm not going to attempt to. And I think he does a really good job explaining what he means by the kingdom of heaven when he, when he tells this parable. Now look here, Luke 19, 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now look, verse 11 is critical. He says he tells them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now immediately we're caught up with a sort of attention here. See, Back in Matthew, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here in Luke 19, they're cruising along on their way to Jerusalem and he's got these guys following him and they're all excited and they're pumped because Jesus is about to institute the kingdom. He's about to restore the rule to Israel. God's authority is about to come back onto this earth. And they're all pumped and excited about it. We can't wait for this. And he senses that excitement. He senses that enthusiasm. So he says, whoa, wait a second, guys. Calm down here. And he's about to tell them a parable to help them understand this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Now, immediately we've got two competing ideas. It's a personal, spiritual thing, and it's something that's totally future and not yet. In one sense, Jesus says it's at hand, and in another sense, he says, whoa, it's not going to happen just yet. So there's a tension here. It's a complex idea, so you've got to pay attention or else you're, you're not going to get it. Now, look here, verse 19, I'm sorry, verse, chapter 19, verse 12. He says... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, we're going to come back to that, but verse 12, that's all the answer we need right there. We'll go on. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So this first servant had one mina and he took that mina and he turned it into ten minas. And Jesus' reward for that servant was, You did good. You produced uh, you know, tenfold on my investment. And uh, I'm going to give you ten cities to rule over now because of your return on the investment. And then uh, it says the second came, verse 18, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. In a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. 
You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Oh, is that how it is, hey? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And verse 27 says, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now that's a pretty significant parable. That's pretty, pretty hard. You got two groups of people. You got servants and you got citizens. Citizens don't want Jesus to reign. They protest, they object, they don't want it. You got the servants who to various degrees are faithful with what they've been given. Two different groups. Look at verse 12. This is the key to understanding the whole parable. It says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now when we hear this idea of kingdom, we tend to think in terms of a realm, as in a geographical place. Uh, so, you know, the king has authority in this particular realm. And, and that's true. But when we think in terms of kingdom, our modern vernacular has sort of drawn us so far down this road of sort of geographical understanding that now when we think of a kingdom, we really only think of the geographical confines of that kingdom. But you'll see here, the nobleman in verse 12 isn't traveling to his kingdom. He's actually leaving the kingdom and traveling somewhere else to receive the kingdom. In other words, when we use this idea of kingdom, we're not necessarily talking about a geographical territory, although that's included. What we're talking about is the authority to rule, the right to be king the right to exercise dominion over the people or, or the, the area that that kingdom includes. That's what we're talking about when we understand kingdom. Furthermore, this parable here in Luke 19 is incredibly helpful in terms of helping us to understand these two sort of competing ideas. Is it, is it a personal kind of in our heart kind of thing or is it something that's future and, and cataclysmic and apocalyptic and something far down the road? And the answer is it's, it's both. It's not one or the other, it's, it's both. Now, Jesus makes it clear here in Luke 19. He's coming back, and he will rule on this earth. He will exercise authority and dominion, and all governments, all powers, and all principalities will, at some point in the future, everything on this earth will be subjected to his authority. One day, that's going to happen. Here in Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew, he says, that rule, that dominion, that authority has arrived. Now, not everything is subjected to it, but when he says here in Matthew chapter 4, and, and don't miss this, it's important. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, repent for the authority to rule is here. The authority of heaven, the dominion of God is here. Now I want you to look down here at verse 23. What are some of the practical effects of Christ's dominion? What, what happens here? It says he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, look at this, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that the authority is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. And look at the next part here. It says, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then that repeats itself. Paralytics, epilept epileptics, people who are oppressed by demons. All of these people are healed. One of my favorite theologians, B.B. Warfield, makes this powerful statement. And, and I couldn't put it any more poetically or any more beautifully than this, so I'm just going to read it to you. When our Lord came down to earth, 
he drew heaven down with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought down. Isn't that amazing? He goes on to say, the number of miracles which Jesus wrought, this is a, an older book, so we don't use the word wrought anymore, but the number of miracles which he performed may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If this is an exaggeration, it is a pardonable exaggeration because the truth is, wherever he went, he brought blessing. So, Jesus says, the kingdom is here. The right to rule has arrived. And the practical results of that is, basically, diseases are healed. Afflictions are cured. People are hearing the good news. People are flocking to him. And in between, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, in between these two ideas comes follow me. Okay? Follow me. It's not a suggestion. It's not a question. Because if it were, if he were asking... If he were saying, hey, would you guys like to follow me? You know, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I can do miracles. If that's what he was saying, then he wouldn't really be the king, now would he? If he were making a request, then that would not be consistent with what he just got done saying, which is the right to rule, the right to govern, the authority is imminent. It's at hand. It's arrived. So he's looking at Peter, Simon, John, James, Andrew. And he's not asking. As a king, he is not asking. He is telling them, follow me. Now we've got two ideas here in this passage. And it's repeated. Idea number one is call. And idea number two is response. Call and response. So looking in, boring in just a little bit more closely here, he said to them, follow me. He's saying to you, follow him. So the question is, are you following him? Are you? Right now in this moment, doesn't matter about Josh Clay Camp. It doesn't matter about the person sitting next to you. It doesn't matter about anybody or anything else. It doesn't matter about your 9 to 5 job. It doesn't matter about your family. It doesn't matter about anything else in this world. The right to rule has come to this earth. The one who is able to rule has already arrived. His name is Jesus and his statement to you is follow him. And the question is, are you? In this passage, we have two ideas that repeat the call, the command, and the response. Now, he is not a rabbi. I mean, he is a rabbi, but he's not just a rabbi. He is a king. The word of Christ's call gives us the opportunity to express our faith in him as a king. In other words, if you're not following him, you're not a, a disciple of Jesus. Are you really saved? See, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And it doesn't matter how good it is, the thing that you're doing, if it's done for the wrong reason, it's still the wrong thing. Now, these disciples do a lot of great things with Jesus. They go around healing people, they go around casting out demons. Uh, they feed the multitudes. And I know you can look at each one of those miracles and you say, well, it was the power of Christ in them that gave them the ability to do all these wonderful, miraculous things. Granted. But what if they said no here in Galilee? Let's just say they say no to Jesus, but they say yes to a life of philanthropic good works. Many people do that today. I mean, uh, you've got all kinds of organizations that do all kinds of good deeds 
feeding the homeless, clothing the poor, trying to cure AIDS, taking care of orphans coming out of broken homes. Those things are all wonderful things. But are they done with an idea of Christ's authority and his supernatural power? The disciples could have done all kinds of good things, but apart from Jesus, none of that really matters. Apart from Jesus, let's just say they heal people. So, guy has a disease, you know, they encounter numerous individuals with diseases and demons. Let's just say they cast out some demons and they heal some people. And these people are like, hey, thanks, I appreciate that. So what? They go on 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then they die. What have you really changed? What have you really altered? You made them temporarily better. You performed a temporary good in their life. You performed a temporary service in their life, but really it was only temporary. You just put a band-aid on it. See, no matter what good you may do, no matter how well you do it, if you do not bring the gospel, if you do not bring the good news of the kingdom into somebody's life, you've really not done anything at all. And so you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and it doesn't really matter. They become the wrong things. They become useless things. They become just a band-aid on a much deeper, more severe problem. Christ comes, he says, follow me. Not, hey, would you guys like to go do some nice things for people? And that's important. You need to see that. Jesus isn't inviting these people to go out and do good works. That's not what he's asking them to do. He's not saying you can make a difference. Your life can count for something. I will give you purpose. He doesn't say anything like that. His simple statement is, follow me. Which means, even though these guys followed him, even though they did all kinds of good things, none of that is really crucial to this moment. And the moment that we're talking about is a simple moment. Will you follow Jesus? Will you? Will you follow him? Because if you're going to follow him, it's going to require something costly. Well, I thought salvation was by faith. It is by faith. Well, you're telling me I got to give up stuff and walk away from stuff and I got to follow Jesus and I got to make Jesus the focus of my life. First off, I'm not saying that Jesus is saying that. Second off, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what the scriptures are saying. Well, but Josh, how can this be? I thought all I needed was a simple faith, a simple understanding that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and because of what he did there, it's all good. I can walk away. End of story. As long as I know that intellectually, as long as I understand that on an academic level, I understand the historical facts of what happened 2,000 years ago, I'm good. No, actually. See, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. To follow Jesus means you get salvation for free. But to follow Christ requires everything of you. You give up everything to follow Jesus. You walk away from everything to be called a disciple of Jesus. You say goodbye to your friends. You say goodbye to your family. You're willing even to say goodbye to whatever your career is to follow him. That is the bare bones truth of what this passage is saying. There's no way around it. There is no way around it. You don't negotiate. You don't compromise. You don't say, well, I will give up this and this, but I'm going to hang on to that. You don't make a deal with the king. If he has called you, then he has called you as king, not as someone at the table of negotiation, not as someone that you can bargain with or barter with or trade. If you enter a relationship with Christ... Holding something back, holding on to anything, and you're not willing to let go of all of it and put it all on the table and say, I give all of myself to you, then you have not followed him. You have not understood what it means to be a disciple. And I don't think that you have faith in Christ. 
if you're not following him. That is a bold statement, but I'm absolutely convinced that's the truth of this passage. Those who have faith in Christ obey. And really, only those who obey have faith. These guys, they see him. He is the king. He commands, follow me. And their response is, they obey. And it's costly. I mean, it says it right there. They walked away from their family. They walked away from their job. They walked away from everything that they've known. That first step is crucial. Call and response. That's all we see in this passage. Jesus calls and their response is immediately they followed him. And it's that first step. It's that first step that cuts you off from your whole way of former life. Your previous existence is now in the rearview mirror. It's behind you. To follow Christ you got to be willing to say goodbye to everything else. Some of you are like, Josh, that's pretty black and white. I'm convinced that's what the passage is saying. It's black and white. Say, but I, you know, does that mean I have to like go and, and tenure my resignation tomorrow? Like, should I go and offer my, my resignation at my job tomorrow? Well, has Christ called you? That's a, a real ambiguous statement. What are you saying, Clay Camp? What I'm saying is, what is Christ calling you to do? For some of us, yeah, it could be exactly that. No less. If he says, you give up everything, and I'm going to send you away to be a missionary in the jungles of the Philippines, that's exactly what it means. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to heed his call on your life, you say goodbye to your 9 to 5, you say goodbye to financial security, you say goodbye to the life you've always known, you pack it in, and you head out to the Philippines. For some of us, what it means is he is calling you to raise children who will be champions for the kingdom. So what that means is, moms and dads in particular, and I struggle with this too, you're at work all day, you come home, you're like, okay, I'm exhausted, I want to curl up in the lazy boy, and I want to watch the evening news, and you know, give the kids a bath, and put them to bed, and then go to sleep, veg out in front of the TV. I'm willing to bet I'm not alone in this. I think just about every single guy in here understands that and is, has been there if they're not there right now. If God's call in your life is to raise amazing kids, then guess what the most crucial time of your day is? It is not 8 a.m. answering that first email. It is not the 8 a.m. memo. If you're going to follow Jesus and his calling on your life is to be in a stellar dad or a stellar mom, then the most important time of your day is that time you spend with your kids, which means that your nine to five, those eight hours you spend at work, really are just preparatory so you can put food on the table, put a roof over the head, but really the most crucial moment of your day is when you walk home and you hear those little voices crying out, Daddy's home. That's when your job begins. Not at 8 a.m. So you may be tired, you may be exhausted, you're driving home, you're like, oh, I'm tired, I just want to eat dinner, and veg out in front of the TV. Stop thinking that way. Use your drive home. Okay, God, I'm tired, but this is it. This is the moment for me to fulfill your calling on my life. So try to psych yourself up a bit. You know, I know you're tired. This is what it means to be a father, okay? You've been at work all day, so, you know, kind of, you know, put on some soft rock or whatever. I don't know what your driving music is that you listen to. Just kind of relax those shoulder muscles. But just know as soon as you hit the door, it's game time. It's not veggie time. It's not like let's veg out from the TV time. It is I'm going to spend time with my kids. Now, I think for the most of us in this room, that's what it is. Moms and dads included. So now you can ask yourself a question. Do I see in my children, do I see faith forming in their heart? Do I see them coming to a place where they are wanting to talk about God? Where they're wanting to know about Jesus? Say, well, but whoa, 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 click camp. Like, it, it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe I'm not one of those types of Christians. I'm not really passionate, but I'm not really, you know, totally opposed to this whole thing. So you're not hot, and you're not cold. You're what? 
Lukewarm, right? My king speaks to that as well. Revelation chapter 3. He doesn't brook any half-heartedness. He doesn't tolerate any halfway commitment. You're either all in with Jesus or you're not in at all. That's the command of the passage. Follow me. Now in that moment, when he calls them, they have a choice to make. And they don't got a lot of time. I mean, he says, follow me. And he's moving down the beach to the next group. You got, what, two seconds, three seconds? They got up and walked. They followed him. If you're following Jesus, look at what the passage says here. It says, follow me. And you may be here today and you're saying, how can I know if I'm following him? Look at the passage. Verse, nine, verse, eight, verse 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So it's real clear. Are you following Jesus? Yes, I am. What has he called you to do? For some of us, he has called me to be the best businessman in the world. If you have kids, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not what he's called you to be. He has a priority in his word. But for some of us who may not have kids, maybe that's what he's calling us to do. For those of us who have kids, I'm telling you right now, I don't have time to get into it, but the scriptures are clear. He's calling you to be the best dad in the world. So whatever he's calling you to be, the question is not, am I making, for example, if you're the best businessman in the world, the question is not, am I making billions and millions of dollars? That's not the question. The question is, am I catching men for Christ? If you're called to be the best dad in the world, the question is not, am I raising children that can play the piano and know Einstein's theory of relativity and are just geniuses? That is not the measurement of success that Christ gives. The question for whether or not you're being the best dad in the world is, do my kids love God? I mean, they can be like me and be like, totally loony at, you know, 13, just flying off the wall, living life on the edge of their seat. They could be geniuses. They could be buckling down and studying and know Einstein's theory of relativity. That's not material to the question. Your king has called you to follow him. If you're following him and doing what he wants you to do, the standard measurement of success given in this passage is, are you catching Men, are you catching your children? Are you catching the people in your work environment? Are you catching people wherever you are, in your neighborhood, in your community, in the marketplace, wherever your king has put you, are you catching them into the kingdom? Jesus says, I am a fisher of men. And if you follow me, and these guys, they know fishing. This is their whole life. They understand the skill of going out and capturing people, uh, capturing fish. They understand that. And Christ's statement is, you follow me. And, and it's not instantaneous. He doesn't say, you follow me, you will be fishers of men. You are fishers of men. He doesn't say that. There's a future tense in this verb, and it's a promise. I will make you. At some point, you will become a man catcher or a child catcher for the sake of the kingdom. So, now, just back up here for a second, because this makes it really easy for us. Do I see people in my life coming closer to the Lord? Am I, am I drawing people in wherever God has assigned me, wherever my king has placed me? Do I see people coming to a place where they're wanting to ask questions about God, they're toying with the idea of becoming a Christian? Uh, are they drawn to it? And if you don't see that, you need to ask yourself, are you following him? Now, the scriptures talk about having spiritual gifts. Some of us have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Some of us just naturally, you know, you can walk up to a brick wall and start getting the brick wall to open up to you, you know. You can get a story out of a tree, you know, and you're just gifted at, at the gift of gab. You can talk to people, you can get in there, get their life story, and you share the gospel with them. That's not my gifting. It's not. And I'm not saying every person in here has to be like, you know, 
rocket man evangelist, Billy Graham. That's not what this passage is saying. But if you have a devotion for Christ, if you have a love for Jesus, do you see people around you who kind of clue into that? Are they drawn to that? Are they asking questions about that? Are they, are they coming closer and closer in their orbit around you and wanting to know about this Jesus, this king that you follow? And so if that's not the case, maybe you're not following him as closely and as carefully as he commands you to. You know, there's a, a, a really cool story. I uh, was reading through a, a, a history of Yorkshire. I was reading through a history of Yorkshire. And um, it's a fishing community men who've devoted their whole lives to making their living off of the sea. And there's an interesting historical account recorded on the 6th of October, 1799. There was a pounding storm that day. Pounding, pounding storm. Hurricane, gale force winds. The waters were stirred up. It was choppy. Uh, people on the beach are like, yeah, we're not fishing today. It's just too dangerous. You know, if you, if you could successfully launch a boat, you wouldn't be able to successfully land it because the waves are just pounding upon the rocks. One individual looked out at the ocean and he spotted a, a merchant vessel about nine, nine, ten kilometers out to sea. And the vessel was in danger. It was about to be capsized. Waves were crashing upon it. Four men jumped in a wooden skiff and began to paddle out into this ocean. Four men in a boat jumped in a little wooden boat to go out into the middle of the ocean. Hurricane gale force winds, crashing waves, just violence and ferocity, just dangerous. The guy who records it, he makes this statement. He says, indeed, it was considered a daring attempt of purely foolish men an extravagant waste of their lives, being insensible to every idea of danger. Simply put, they must have been idiots. That doesn't sound very flattering, does it? <laughs> Maybe not from the perspective of an individual standing on the shore, but consider it from the perspective of a hopeless sailor on a stranded merchant vessel about to be crashed into the ocean. Maybe you think it's foolish too, but at least you're happy somebody cares. They're willing to risk for you everything. It says that uh, the boat that these guys were in, the fishing boat, from its construction required the greatest attention and dexterity in its management. A single unskillful movement on the part of these four intrepid men might have proved fatal. Let me translate that for you. The boat was rickety piece of junk, and they needed to manage that thing carefully. So you got four guys jumping in a rickety piece of junk boat, risking their lives on the high seas to save a merchant trawler, a merchant ship. It says, had they failed in their efforts to have reached the vessel, there was no possibility of returning or of landing upon any part of the coast. It was a veritable point of no return. Although they paddled for four hours, a distance of nearly 13 kilometers, it is hard to understand the true distance as they had to turn and twist every which way to keep the boat in a right position to the crashing waves. In other words, they had to zigzag in the waves. They just paddled and paddled and paddled and worked and worked and worked for hours to get out to this ship. It says that every moment the waves broke upon them. At every moment the foam splashed down in them. They were at times bailing water out of their rickety vessel, at other times paddling for all that they were worth. They approached the fishing trawler. The time of the tide was critical. Not a moment was to be lost. This is a fascinating statement. Decision and judgment being essentially necessary. With a comprehensive presence of mind and skillful foresight attained by long experience fishing in these waters, they saw at a glance what was required. They had been in those waters, they had been in those waters, and they had been in those waters. They knew how to do things in those waters that these guys on this ship had no clue. It looked suicidal, but they actually knew what they were about. Having spent a long time in this ocean, they knew how to navigate it. They knew how to pull men out of it. The idea there is, 
you spend time with Christ, you also will know how to navigate in any water for the sake of pulling men out of it. The guy, his name is John Cole, it's Histories and Antiquities of Filey in the county of York, makes this last statement. What is the most amazing thing is that this challenging rescue, he, he names four guys, Matthew Hogston, William Henderson, John Harwood, and Robert Reed. They pulled those guys out of the ocean that day. He makes a statement, what is the most amazing thing about this challenging rescue is that it was not Matthew Hogston's first attempt. He had been three separate times overturned in his boat on similar occasions preceding this miraculous rescue, and three of his former companions have, in those previous cases, been drowned. Despite the loss of loved ones and friends, he has never failed to answer the call for help. Now imagine you're the other three guys on this day. Imagine you're Robert Reed or John Harwood and William Henderson and Matthew Hogson and says, there are some guys in danger, let's go help them. And you're like, wait a second, where are your other friends? Like, where did these guys go? How does this man lead four other men into the ocean when he hasn't been so good at it in the past. I understand your fear talking to people about Jesus. I understand your reluctance to take the good news into those murky waters. But if you're following Jesus, I promise you, you'll get home safe. The question is, Ultimately, not are you good at sharing your faith? Are you good at being a dad? Are you good at being a businessman? Are you good at any of these things? The question at the end of the day has always and will always be this simple question. Are you following without reservation Jesus Christ? Let's bow forward to prayer. God, we love you. And we thank you so much for this time. Father, we pray that you make us fishers of men. God, we pray that you would turn us into people who shine brightly for the sake of the kingdom, your kingdom, your authority, your rule. God, we want to see heaven come down. We want to see your kingdom established on this earth. We know that true happiness and true joy is only found under your loving care and providential direction. God, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We ask you, Lord, that it be done in our lives, that we would be followers of you. Father, if there's anyone here today, God, who does not follow you wholeheartedly with reckless abandon, trusting only in you, God, I pray you would convict that person, that you would just put it into his heart to let go, to surrender all, to forsake all, to walk away from everything, put it all on the table and follow only you. God, we know you're speaking. We know we hold on to things. We know we turn things into idols. Father, I just pray to you today that you would just destroy those idols from our hands, however painful or difficult it might be, so that we could see clear to following you. God, would you work in our lives? We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.